so Laura, like, so you're an archaeologist studying immigration. So I'm, I'm wondering what kinds of materials you actually look at then. Because uh, yeah. when I think of an archaeologist, I'm thinking of like Jurassic Park, or I'm thinking, oh, or even like, or that's even paleontology. Like, paleontology. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's a different field. But yes. <laughs> or e or even like people looking at like ceramics. Ant. Yeah, ceramics. Yeah. Just like that. anything that comes out of the ground that's not dirt, like that's not dirt or rocks, like that's an artifact. So, oftentimes. Um, what we're finding is our broken uh, rice bowls and broken um, like liquor bottles, whiskey bottles, um, random metal parts. So kind of like what you would probably expect to find if there was a house or a structure and then it, it got demolished or if so oftentimes we're looking at trash pits. So that's Literally, yeah, we're looking at out. So again, that would be like broken ceramics and fragments of, of things, beer bottles, um, maybe even like food remains. So that would be fish bones, um, pig, um, pig bone, beef, bone, cow bones, things like that. So it's all, all of that we consider artifacts and things that we would clean and, and organize and categorize, identify. Um, so a lot of the ceramics you can research and find out how old they are, um, what pattern they are, um, whether they came from China or if they came, or if they're um, more of a American or, or British um, plate or something like that. So what that, what those materials help us do is you can you can study some a site as it changes over time so that's why kind of your reference to to digging dinosaurs the oldest layers are going to be at the bottom you know deeper and then the the younger layers are going to be closer to the top so in that way you can look you can compare different um layers and say okay they're eating more uh, beef in this time period, and you and you can date the artifacts. So you can say, okay, this is a this is 1920s like Chinatown material, and they were looks like they were like starving or something like that, or they were getting uh, or they were buying from a certain place um, rather than growing their own food. Because I, I think if you look at animal bones you can tell like if they were butchered by like a professional like with a saw and versus something that um they were cutting with a cleaver um so it's kind of interesting to kind of trace that um and then the ceramics they have maker's marks so you can you know look at where they're buying their stuff from and what they're using it for and there's all kinds of interpretations you can you can apply to um, or analyses, sorry, and then the interpretations come from your analyses. So, yeah, right now I'm still looking at my artifact collection, um, but from my analysis of the of the archaeology survey that I did in China, 
on the home village, um, I'm finding a lot of artifacts that are similar to what people would have used in Chinatowns in terms of the Chinese tablewares. Um, so I think that's interesting because um, I actually helped excavate another home village or investigate another home village in China that also had ties to um, immigration to other parts of the world. And there was one pattern that they didn't find. Um, it's called the Four Seasons Flower. And I found that in my village. So I think it kind of, um, it shows that there's differences in what people have access to in the home village. And then it also perhaps shows like that the people, the immigrants in the US were perhaps buying their ceramics from a different source than the people in the home village. So that kind of, um, I think relates to the rise of these specific gold mountain firms that were handling not only um, remittances and letters, but also providing goods to, to Chinatowns all over the world. Um, so I think doing more analysis like of, of what's going on, what, what are their, where are they getting their stuff from in China? Like that would really help um, clarify the networks that that brought these goods over because I'm thinking it's it's different than what the home village people are getting um, access to although it could be the same so maybe that changes over time so and also I think what's interesting too is what they brought over to China that is is clearly American made um, so in one instance I found a, a kind of like an aspirin bottle a pill bottle that was definitely made in the US. And so it's kind of interesting that um, they chose to bring this and I, I'm pretty sure they brought it over individually on the ship um, as, there was, as they were returning to China so that um, they could, yeah, have this medicine like with them and maybe to share it with their relatives um, because um, Chinese people, I don't know if you know, but they're really into medicine and there's all kinds of different ways that you can, you can have um, medicine, you can apply it topically, so you can rub like oil to your skin and that's like something my grandmother like was really into. And you can ingest pills, um, you could have like a liquid that you could ingest. And there were so many Chinese medicines available at the time. Um, so it was really interesting that they would bring this thing back from the US when they had so much available. So I think it, it touches on healthcare and um, you know, what that, that Chinese people were like kind of willing to try like different things um, and maybe thought they were even better than what they had in, in the home village. And then another, interesting thing was like a, a spoon I found um, a western metal spoon and um it made me think of the story that I had heard from someone whose grandfather returned to the village from America from Riverside and he said that when he came back to China he was really wanting coffee and this is something that you know wasn't really available in the village but it was available in the um in the big town the big city nearby um 
And so this is something, this love for coffee was something that they acquired in the United States. Um, and so I was thinking of this spoon as something like maybe for sugar for your coffee or like something for your, I don't know, just something that you couldn't have while you're in China, but that you had, you had grown accustomed to in the United States. So I think it's also, I guess with my project, I'm also trying to say that like, not only did, did it, did Chinese immigrants like kind of, you know, contribute to, to their local society in the U.S., but also when they came back to their home village, they also, you know, there are also things that they brought back that, that they got used to while they were in, in the U.S., and, and I think it kind of shows that these communities are not static, like, they're not just, like, frozen in time, that when we talk about China, where people came from, that they're changing too, and they're, they're adapting um, as well. So I think what, what we, as archaeologists, we tend to think like, okay, well, in China, they would have eaten more pork than, than beef. They would have, you know, only used Chinese stuff in their daily life, like, to eat with. And I think that's not true, especially when, when you're looking at this group where a large portion of their population is transnational, that they're coming back and forth between the China, between China and the US. And so it, it, it kind of, um, well, I hope that it shows that like communities are formed um, by people who, yeah, like are in different places and um, don't necessarily have are not necessarily traditional, static, um, and yeah, that's what I want to show. Cool. Another, so another question I had was, um, so I, I, I know your, your research focus is on a particular like time frame, yeah. but I was wondering if you also might know, uh, when did, when, when did uh, Chinese from other parts of China start to immigrate to the U.S., such as uh, people from yeah, that's more, a good northern, more northern parts? Yeah, so that is... Um, that all changed with the 1965 Immigration Act in the U.S. And um, interestingly, this kind of comes at the heels of like the civil rights movement, um, which, you know, led by black folks. <laughs> and um, it's kind of like, yeah, this law was, had such a huge impact on, um, on Asian immigration, um, especially immigration from China. So it allowed people to reunify with their family members. And this is really um, how my family came to the United States too, because we, um, if you already have family in the US, they can sponsor, you can sponsor your siblings and you can sponsor your parents to come over to the US. And I had an aunt who married a Chinese American man in the United States who was already in the United States and she was able to sponsor all um, 10 of her of her siblings and then those siblings are able to sponsor their wives or, or, or husbands to come to the US and then those people are able to sponsor their families so like basically you could bring a whole village to the US um, if you guys are all related or married or 
whatever to each other. And so that's why Chinatowns um, continue to thrive in the eight, in the seventies, eighties, nineties, because there's, there's this new immigration um, that people need a place where they can, where if they don't know English, like they can get around, they can buy things at the grocery store. They can get help from like um, Chinese organizations that help new immigrants. And then in terms of um, Northern Chinese immigration though, like, or, or immigration from Hong Kong and Taiwan, I think that that really comes with um, just uh, H, oh God, I'm gonna, HB1 or H1B. Sure. H1B. <laughs> H1B visas where like, if you have a skill in the high tech, you know, industry or like something that makes you um, valuable to the United States, like in terms of what you, what skills you can bring, that um, that's where like a lot a lot of these um, immigrants from Hong Kong and perhaps Northern China, um, Taiwan, started to come. And uh, yeah, and I think there's a pathway to citizenship for for those visa holders um and then in canada i think you can just buy your way and so like <laughs> citizenship if you're really wealthy like and a lot of people in china are because you know china's a superpower um and rise of middle class and industrialization there's like yeah you can you can if you can throw money at, at like permanent residency or something you can you can become uh, a Canadian citizen. I don't, the U.S. doesn't have that. Um, but yeah, it's just these, these more lax immigration um, um, laws, um, which are now under like, you know, it, those, these visas they're trying to restrict. And, you know, we heard with ICE um, trying to tell international students that they can't be here. Like, like these, laws that are you know fought were fought for and like were beneficial economically now they're under attack because you know we have this anti-immigrant rhetoric thanks to trump um yeah it's all it's all um you know it's part of our history to exclude people so i'm not surprised <laughs> that that there this there's a resurgence so it's um yeah, we definitely have to be vigilant and just kind of be like, no, you know, if you're, if you're, um, you know, America supposedly stands for immigrants and welcomes immigrants. Um, and historically, um, it has for white Western <laughs> Europeans, but yeah, it's, it's kind of, I think we're at a crucial moment where like, yeah, we have to decide like, do we, do we forsake those kind of like, that kind of nation of immigrants idea or do we um, hold on to it and, and kind of fight for the rights of, pe for people to come here and make a better life for themselves? Did I answer yeah. your question? <laughs> yes, I think I did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I went on a tangent though after that. <laughs> no, it's all good. I feel like we tend to do that on this pod anyway. Yeah. I, I don't know, like um, like in the late 19th century, how did the Chinese oh, folks 
sorry. Oh. I have a bad connection. I didn't hear. Oh you. no, it's all good. My connections have been kind of wonky too. Okay. Uh, I was just, I was just curious uh, about the, uh, the perception of the, like the Chinese people, how do they perceive America? Cause I feel like there's this idealized, um, fantasy or notion that, you know, America is a great country. It's a, you know, a lot of freedom and yeah. you, know, you, you can, you can like make it if you work hard and, you know, do all this. I mean, we all know it's bullshit, but <laughs> I just want to know, like, how has that, uh, idealization of America, how has it shifted? like from the late 19th century to the current day? Cause like, I feel like mm. I, I've been hearing a lot of uh, Chinese international students that come here. Okay. They have these idealized notion of America. When they get here, they're like, what the fuck? You know, there's a lot of homeless people. I'm, <laughs> I'm experiencing like discrimination and racism and sexism. Um, this, this sucks. And most of them and actually end up going back to China or the original country and become more nationalistic in their countries of origin. <laughs> yeah, that's but, super interesting. But I'm just kind of curious about how how, how has the view of America has shifted uh, with the Chinese uh, over these past, you know, century? 150 years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I definitely think um, in the beginning, I think in the late 19th century, there was kind of bad information about what America was going to be like that people, if they were going to make a profit off of you going to America, they would probably make, make it sound great. Right. And and the people who were in the U.S. and weren't doing well, they were probably embarrassed to say like that they weren't doing well. So I think the people who were coming over in the 18, late 1800s um, for the first time, they probably didn't know how bad it would be once they got here. So I don't think they were like, Mm, I don't think they were coming here to necessarily like they didn't have this concept of American dream like I think this idea of of making money was basically what motivated them and um you know that's why Chinese immigrants call 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 America or Canada or Australia gold mountain depends on where, what time period and what when they were going, but it's, it is um, interesting that a lot of the immigration was also because people were trying to unify, re, reunify with someone. Um, I think I see that a lot in my, in my Chinatowns, especially. Um, you see uh, like 14 year old, 13 year old um, sons of these, of these uh, immigrants coming over and they could do so legally um, because if you were the son of a merchant and you were under 21 uh, over to join your, your father, I mean, there's still like no citizenship <laughs> for you, but um, that's, that's kind of a narrative that I'm also interested in, like kind of shedding light on like that. It wasn't all just, you know, coming over to make money as soon as possible and then going over, going back. Um, although I think like, even if you did bring your son over, I think there was still this idea that eventually you would retire in China and um, that you were, you were bringing your son over to like kind of show him how to run a business or whatever. But a lot of these people went to school with like, and they were like the only 
one of the few Chinese people in their in their classroom. So super interesting um, that subset of people. And then there are a few women who did were able to join their husbands as the wives of merchants, but that was pretty rare because their women, Chinese women were scrutinized pretty harshly by immigration officers and a lot of times they were rejected from coming over. Um, so in terms of later on, I think the, um, I kind of want to talk about the Chinese American population because um, your, your thing about nationalism um, kind of reminded me of um, there's a, a large, a growing um, Chinese American population. So these are second generation, maybe even third generation. People who um, born here, they grew up like, you know, going to school, maybe with white students, um, but they're facing a lot of discrimination in terms of jobs. Like, you know, even if you got a degree in engineering, like no engineering firm would hire you. If you got a degree in, uh, to try to be a teacher as a, as a woman, like nobody would hire you as a Chinese American woman teacher. So I think there's a lot of frustration with that. And when World War II happened, there was that um, a lot of them uh, were, uh, were eager to join in because they would be fighting for their home country, China, right? I mean, what, so a lot of people would, would, would say, um, my future is going to be in China because there's so much discrimination here against me. Like, even though I was born here, like, I, I'm, I'm bilingual and I, like, I'm okay with, you know, marrying someone in China and just kind of making my future there. So there were some people that did that and, and they would, they, or, or maybe they didn't go and live in China, but they would, they were willing to fight for during World War II. And then um, there was a lot of, yeah, kind of that kind of Chinese nationalism starting in, in Chinese American communities, um, a lot of fundraising efforts for various things. Um, and then I think with people like my parents who came in the 1980s, I think, oh wait, I also wanna back up. In between, there's like communism in China, which um, is kind of why there's this kind of period of time where, the, where there's not really much of a US relationship with with China and that's why this between World War II and like 1965 Immigration Act like it seems like there's nothing happening but that's because um, yeah China you know Mao was in power and there was no it was hard to communicate with family um, back in China so um, I think during that time period there was some immigration but it's kind of people who are refugees they call themselves refugees and they're escaping communist china because uh, if you were if you owned land like you were thought of as not not good <laughs> just to simplify things um yeah that you were part of yeah the problem that you were a landlord and so on so a lot of people who had connections to to Chinese immigrants, they had land and they had, you know, they were thought of as rich people. So there was some immigration because of that. Um, so that's just straight up like, yeah, they were considered refugees. Um, 
and they would escape to Hong Kong first, I think, a lot of times. Um, and then later on, like, my parents' generation, like, post-1965 immigration, that's, like, a lot of, I guess, you know, that's when we kind of hear about this American dream thing. And I feel like with my parents, like, they probably would agree with what you were saying. Like, oh, we came here for a better opportunity to, to have a better life. But I think it's also residual is, like, trying to escape communism and, like, the poverty that that caused, the, the kind of lack of um, a future, like, that they saw. But then having these connections to the U.S., right? Because if there's so many people in the world who, who would probably say, I would love to come to America and start there. But, you know, if you don't have the connections, you don't have a pathway, like, you're not going to, there's not going to be a huge immigration from wherever you're living. But because obviously, like, my family, they come from this part of the world where there's been 100 plus years of immigration, like, they dream it's i think it's more like we're poor and we want we have these connections so we're gonna take advantage of it so that's why yeah so I yeah i yeah. i think that i think you're right that's kind of you have to have you have to have some um some relationship with the u.s i don't think it's whether it's through through immigration laws that allow you to come recruitment for some reason or, but I think also the rise of capitalism and just like the need for cheap labor kind of thing. Cause like my parents, when they came, they were restaurant worker and like, you know, seamstress. So like they were totally exploited like by their own people <laughs> to do these jobs that are, that are, you know, they don't have to pay them a lot and they, you know, have to still live like, yeah, they're, I mean, my parents are working class. They've never been, not working class so it's still like have it and they've only been able to save like tons of money by just living super frugally like i've never i never saw them go out to eat like i never saw them like buy anything crazy um so anyway kind of a tangent but <laughs> yeah good. sorry what was your question next question um well we're already past an hour mark but i don't know how much more time you got oh yeah uh i can do one more question and then i'll have to go okay uh carlos did you have any dying questions i had one question but it's not really like crazy uh that's fine i, I yeah i didn't really have any 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 questions uh i guess uh laura like what are some uh book or film recommendations you have what are some what a book or a film recommendation like documentary or any series i mean yeah. it could be pertaining to the the research or it could just be your own like interest yeah um i would totally recommend the pbs documentary asian americans um i'm not sure it's free anymore but i think you can buy it as a dvd and that tells you the history of asian americans from like when when filipinos um, formed the first Asian American communities in New Orleans, in Louisiana, um, when they jumped ship from Spanish galleons all the way up to like present day, you know, with, you know, well, not, not present, present day with COVID and anti-Asian racism, but more like, you know, 9-11 and how, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of anti-Muslim rhetoric and then that spills over to like anti 
confusing Sikhs with, you know, <laughs> Muslims. Um, and just, yeah, this idea that like, we're, we're always foreign and um, that we can, depending on what the political and social climate is, like we're, we're gonna be hated. Um, so I think what's cool about that documentary is it, it covers like different Asian groups, not just Chinese and not just Japanese, but also like brown Asians, like Filipinos and, and um, uh, Southeast, so, sorry, South Asian groups and then Southeast Asian groups as well. So covering the Vietnam War and why Southeast Asian refugees are here. So um, yeah, I definitely think that's, that's a good one. And then in terms of books, um, well, I would, I guess I could promote my book chapter <laughs> and say, yeah, there's this new book out called Chinese Dads for Archaeology in North America. It's an edited volume um, that um, Chelsea Rose and Ryan Kennedy put together and I'm, I have a book chapter in it. Um, and basically just kind of talking about my research, not, not my findings, but kind of why I want to do this research that looks at these diasporically linked communities and why that's important and why Chinese American history should be looked at from this point of view, not just like from the US point of view, but like from a more um, transnational perspective that includes the home village. And then there's other ones that talk about other community, Chinese communities, not just in California, which is like, you know, I'm contributing to this <laughs> California-centric point of view, but, um, you know, Chinese in, in New Orleans, Chinese in, um, in Montana, and Chinese in Idaho. So like, it's, um, yeah, Chinese people were everywhere. So if <laughs> it's, it's kind of interesting that um, archaeology is one of the few ways that we've been able to, um, oh, um, so archaeology is one of the ways that we can highlight like these communities that don't have a, don't have a physical marker anymore. There's no buildings um, that sounds all over California. Every, like you name a city, there was a Chinese community there or a Chinese vegetable garden. Um, so I think archaeology, just in it of itself, is um, like a witness, kind of, to like what what was what was here before, um, and that like America was never a country that was completely white, <laughs> and that they were the people who, you know, built everything, or that they, or that they were the ones that kind of. Uh, yeah, um, the main contributors to, to the establishment of the U.S. So um, those are my two recommendations. And yeah, thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah, no, thank you so much for joining us and just sharing your research. I learned so much today. So many things I didn't know about. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for joining us. I learned a lot, too. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. And how was this for you, Laura? I don't know if you've ever done like a um, an interview or a podcast. It was good. Actually, no, I have not done like a full like hour and a half <laughs> interview. Yeah, it was really good because I, I felt like I have like 
a lot of things I wanted to talk about in my in my dissertation, but like I probably would not be able to like all this stuff about all the questions you guys brought up about about more contemporary like Chinese immigration and more like yeah, just kind of why why people came and um I think yeah, what all these interactions with different communities, I would definitely want to want to look at that more in my dissertation so thanks for bringing that up yeah cool yeah and now like i haven't been able to see my family yeah i mean COVID. yeah i, so I like, get that it's kind of interesting yeah i mean i know like i'm i'm just glad my family's healthy so yeah. i don't have anything to complain about um but it is super interesting the times we're living in and like what god all this like anti-asian stuff that's being videotaped like just yeah. two two came out yesterday like and i'm like is it i think it's because people are have their cell phones right it's like it's not that there's more of it it's just, yeah <laughs> it's just that uh, it gets more documented easily and shared and yeah i think you're right so it's, uh, i feel like i just kind of have to not let that stuff get to me and yeah especially since we we're going through like the civil rights movement with black lives matter and yeah that definitely got me down like you know seeing i don't know if you have seen like asian people just being super racist and like, oh yeah yeah i've seen that just like i'm so mad that the the stores are being broken into and looted and it's like yeah literally like in one instance this um this asian woman said that and like this her black friend said can you stop caring more about like the movement and and less about the stores and she was like no she just straight up was like no <laughs> it was so sad it really like it really got to me and i was like i don't know it just i shouldn't be surprised but it just kind of it's demoralizing when you see that you can't even you can't even this person's crying out to you that like like please care about me and you can't <laughs> like it's so sad yeah um i don't know if what you've seen oh no i've seen that a lot too and a lot of the you know i, I don't like going to these asian activist groups and facebook <laughs> they just piss me off every time i go oh, really? <laughs> it's just like <laughs> It's like completely like one-sided like you know there'll be like a lot of anti-black sentiments from you know asian americans that don't know the history of or what you know. about covid and yeah and then on <laughs> the about... other on the, there's also the other extreme of asian activists where they don't even care about the uh asian victims from the the racist attacks but they keep focusing on black lives matter you know and that also yeah it definitely too. does <laughs> yeah. like, can't you just do both <laughs> yeah it's, it is weird yeah no i get I would really want to hear more from you about that. Yeah, maybe maybe next time we can do a pod <laughs> yeah, on that. <laughs> what the hell is wrong with you people? Yeah. You it's can just... care about multiple communities without like throwing the other one under the bus. Exactly. Maybe. And uh, I, I just feel like but, people yeah. are very um, triggered and Radical activated. Streamed. Yeah, they kind of go to extremes when they... You can, it's it's hard to think critically i think when you're when you feel like your community is under attack or like if you're under attack i don't know 
just like when people get mad they do things that they don't that aren't pretty okay like, yeah and the uh, i mean the media tends to focus on the looting and highlight it yeah and you know not necessarily all the black lives matter people are supportive of the looting either you know exactly i'm like and there's been evidence that like white people actually have been the cause of the looting and police officers too so yeah i know and the police thing that's like huge like why don't they focus on that and yeah <laughs> but thank you so much laura yeah, <laughs> it was nice you. to see you again and hear nice from to you. See you too nice to meet you carlos <laughs> maybe yeah we'll do this again i don't know if you have a topic that's related but no i think what you brought up was a good topic i actually didn't realize i had so much to say about it that's why no i don't i don't you should bring someone else <laughs> or you can join a conversation maybe there like you, you could just be a round table because uh other ones we've done where are like because you know most of us are educators here though, especially the ones right. that are on this pod we've done like uh, experiences of uh asian male educators in the inner city that oh, was an, dude, actually, that was an so interesting good. one yeah we did, yeah. we did that one too yeah. Okay, cool. Well, let me know and I'll, I'm going to get some food now. <laughs> All right. See you, Laura. All right. Bye, All right. guys. Nice to meet you. Bye.